Our scripture reading comes from Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, appointed him with Oholiab and with Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the utent furnishings of the tent the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the, awful of burnt, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the basin and the stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, for their services priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place." According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The word of the Lord. Dear Lord, May the words that you give Pastor Edison dive deeply into our hearts, dive deeply into our minds. And if we are people who have never made a profession of faith, Lord, uh, we pray that these words would convict us, that these words through your spirit would soften our hearts and draw us to you into a saving relationship. And for those of us who do know your mercy and are saved, Lord, we pray that this will draw us to you closer, that we may have a closer walk with you, so that in walking closer with you, we may learn more of you and act more like you, Lord, and be more like you, Lord, so that when others see us, they see you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
at a young age, <clears throat> Harry knew that he was different. He could do things with his mind to make things move. He could make things happen that he didn't mean to make happen. But of course, he also was very curious about his life. He had this scar on his forehead that hurt from time to time. And he lived under this cupboard. And he wondered, what am I doing here? What is my purpose? And of course, that story unfolds for seven more books. There's a lot to go there. But aspects of that story reflect the author's story, J.K. Rowling, as well. Rowling, at age 28, had hit a rock bottom, just coming out of a short-lived marriage. She had had her second miscarriage. She was, uh, or miscarriage of her second child. She had a dependent child. She had no job. She, by all means, was a failure by culture state status. This was in 95, a number of years ago. She wondered, as she reflected on this 15 years later, in an interview, she saw her position in life and she wondered, what is my purpose? What, why would I be here? I know I'm meant for something more. Like Harry and like Rowling herself, we've all asked that question. What's my purpose? What is the meaning to my life? Where do I find it? What am I supposed to do we attach language here in our, our Reformed Christian circles. What, what am I called to? I think that's an excellent question. This, is this morning we look at Bezalel and Oholiab. We see that they were called to do something. Called to work on the tabernacle. Called to lead people, but also called to rest in who God was for them. You see, here in this part of Exodus, we are in the final bits of Moses on Mount Sinai, receiving these instructions from Yahweh on how Israel were to be fashioned as his people. You've heard lots of different things about uh, laws and commandments, statues, do this, don't do that, you know, come out. We've, we've even had a whole section on the Sabbath already. And God is giving Moses some of the final instructions of what it looks like to be his people. And he's saying, build a place that I can dwell in it so that you know that you're my people. I'm going to dwell in your midst here with you now. And I'm calling you to build that, to work at it, and then to worship me. See, like... Oholiab and Bezalel, we want a divine calling to come and tell us what our purpose is. We want God just to write it down for us and tell us in the way that he is telling Moses to tell Oholiab and Bezalel, this is what you are to do right here for me as God. This is what I'm calling you to. Well, this morning I want us to look at this passage in Exodus and to pull out some ideas of what does it mean to be a called people? Certainly we are. We feel that. We endeavor in things together and individually. We are called to work. We're called to rest. We're called to, to have families if that's God's blessing on us. We're called to, to work in, this, in these communities, to serve people, to do this, that, and the other. 
And here we get some ideas of what that might look like. But ultimately, our calling is to follow Jesus. That's our primary calling. It's the thing that as believers in the gospel, we are called to walk with, follow him, and the implications of that play out in all the various aspects of our lives. And this morning, I'm just going to present a couple of those for you. I've already teased them for you. They're in your bulletin. They're work and rest, but then also more. We're called to more than just those things. And I present to you that we need to be faithful as called people. We need to be faithful to what God has for us. But let's just jump right in. I have to confess, I love this topic, and so... Uh, we might be here till about 3 p.m. or so if you let me, so don't let me, or else my family will be very mad at me, and you probably will be as well. But we're called to work. I think that's the very first thing that we see in this text here, in the first five verses. We see that Oholiab and Bezalel are called to work. The Lord said to Moses, again on Mount Sinai, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. This aside real fast. This is the first time in the Bible that we come across that language, the Spirit of God. And it's, of course, calling back. It's referencing, or if uh, for our modern day, it's hyperlinking. You just double-click on it, and you're reminded of Genesis 1, 2, or 1, when the Spirit of God hovered over the land. So anyway, so I I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Oholiab and Bezalel called to work, and so are we. And from this passage, what I want us to do is see three myths and debunk those myths from our passage, and then see three principles that come out of that for our work. So uh, pay attention to the myths and the principles. So the first myth that we can debunk is that work is necessarily a paid thing. That work is necessarily a paid thing. You see, from this text... Bezalel and Oholiab, and if you were to fast forward to chapter 35 and and 36 where they're beginning to construct the tabernacle and do the things that God had called them to do. Remember, he's just telling Moses to tell them to do this. So you've got to read a little bit further to find when they actually do it. In 35 and 36, we don't see any sort of exchange of money or goods to compensate Bezalel and Oholiab or any of the people that helped for their work on the tabernacle. You see, today we have a modern understanding of work that it's something that is uh, defined by a W-2 or a 1099 or it's something that we claim on our taxes. It's something that we make money for, but here in the scriptures we see that is not necessarily paid. Of course, this isn't the only place that we see this. If you just look at Genesis 1 and 2 and the garden where Adam was placed in the garden to work it, to till the land, to, to, to work with plants as Brian was leading us this morning in our prayer, hard work. He was not compensated for it in a financial way, in a, a modern way of thinking about it. 
I love the language, the Hebrew language that is used there for Adam as he is working in the ground. It, it draws out, it has this idea of um, drawing out the potential of the land and of people. So to work is to draw out the potential of the land and of people. That is what Adam was called to. It's what Bezalel and Oholiab are called to. And is what you and I are called to as we work, whether paid or unpaid. I just want to overemphasize the fact that work is not necessarily paid. But it is, of course, paid as well. And we see that in the scriptures. It's not like they're trying to hide something behind a rock or a cloth. There are certain aspects and times in the scriptures where we see uh, people in paid work. I mean, a lot of times uh, folks are introduced by the occupation that they have. Simon the tax collector. Paul makes tents. We know of carpenters and shepherds, kings. David was a king, certainly was compensated for the work that he was doing as a king. We see all sorts of people that are doing paid work as well throughout the scriptures. But there is unpaid, volunteer, service work, work that God calls us to do, we're not going to be compensated for. But nonetheless, we press into that. I love uh, this next, this first principle because it kind of leads out of that myth that, that work is necessarily paid. But work is something that everyone does. It might seem like a no-brainer. But I think when we talk about work, we think of our occupation. But instead, God here shows us, uh, not just in our text, but throughout all of Scripture, that all people, no matter their age, stage of life, are called to work. Whether that be through serving in a nursing home, bringing joy to the people of that place by offering your, your skills, your talents, your passions to them, to see a smile on their face and to help them understand the beauty of who they are in Christ. Or whether it's working in a nursery with young people, caring for them. It's hard work. Trust me, as a, as a, a, a young dad as, with little ones, it is work to have young kids. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and another one on the way, and I promise you, I know the work that is coming from that little one. It takes a lot to raise kids. Some of you think, just wait. It gets even harder. But there is good work to be done at all ages and stages of life. That modern belief that work is for the, the young, career-driven folks is just not true. We all have something to offer to the Lord and to God's people to draw the potential of the land and people out for the glory of God and the flourishing of the people around us. We're all called to work. And the next myth that we see it gets drawn out here in Jeremiah 29. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. You know, in Jeremiah, uh, the, the people have been sent into exile. They are there because they were being disobedient. They're there because they were not following wholly after the Lord in all the things that they did. And so, of course, they're sent out. But as they're sent out, God gives them a command. He gives them something to do, who to be, how to be his people while they're in exile. And this is what Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." And this is the, the next myth that I want to debunk, a principle that comes out of it, is that your work, the work we're called to do, will always produce happiness. I mean, I'm careful with the language we used. I mixed this up a little bit in the first service. Work doesn't always produce happiness. But when you work unto the Lord, it will always produce joy joy for knowing that you're doing what he has called you to do. Just think about the things that they were to do while they were there. Build houses. That sounds difficult. Till the ground and plant gardens. If I garden in one little bed for a few hours, I sweat through like three or four shirts. It's hard work. It's not always happy. We have to pull weeds. Take sons and uh, take wives and have sons and daughters. There's real work that goes into this. Seek the welfare of your city. It means entering into relationships that are difficult and hard. But for the sake of their welfare, you do it. We know relationships don't always produce happiness. But our relationship in the Lord does produce joy. And so when we work and when we endeavor, when we toil in these things, as, as the curse that had, was given to Adam is reflected in our lives, that toil work, if we do that unto the Lord and in relationship with him, we will have joy. We may not always have happiness. We get our second principle that kind of comes out of this. Through Jeremiah and Adam and the Israelites, we see that the work that God calls us to doesn't mean we always have to go somewhere. Be faithful right where we are. God is calling you to be faithful right where you are, even if it's not where you want to be. You think about the Israelites, and they're building this tabernacle. God's given them instructions to do it. Their destination is not right there on Mount Sinai. Their destination is the promised land that God had given to their forefathers oh so many chapters ago. You could probably just, you can understand that they, they did not probably want to build this tabernacle right there. Of course, they faithfully would do it, but they wanted to be somewhere else, but yet they endeavored on that work right there because God had called them to it right where they were. Same for the Israelites as they're in exile. They wanted to be back in Jerusalem, the land that God had promised to them. But he calls them to be faithful to the work that they need to do right there in Babylon. And why? Why are they called to that work? It's so that the welfare of the city, by being faithful to where they are, the welfare of the city would come out and that theirs would as well and that the Lord would be glorified in the work that they do. I love the type of work that Oholiab and Bezalel were called to do in the place that they were called. It's craftsmanship. It's artistic. 
They're they're using stones and wood right there from the the land that God would have provided for them. It's a big part of why they needed to stay there to do what they were doing. They were getting all this special wood and gems and stones, dye from certain plants that they were going to use. If you read end of chapter 35 and 36, it's a real community effort. People are bringing their bits of dyed material, their gold, their silver, their bronze to the workers to build this tabernacle. But that material is raw material from the earth. See, the myth is that there is necessarily either sacred or secular work and we see here that it's just not the case. That the material of the earth is what they were using to build this holy place. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon, who's a, is a dead pastor from the 1800s, has served faithfully in London for 38 years at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle Church. I think it's interesting that that's the name of their church, very fitting for today. He was very influential in his day, still influential today for his sermons, his articles. I love the way that he uh, preached about this uh, sometime, in, I think it was in the 1850s, in a sermon, All for Jesus. Here is what he said to his church. To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it's a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it's a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is of incense and life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say, this is sacred, and that is is secular, is, to my mind, diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. He goes on, Paul has said, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. The Lord has cleansed your houses, my brothers and sisters. He has cleansed your bedchambers, your tables, your shops. He has made the bells upon your horses holiness to the Lord. He has made the common pots and pans of your kitchens to be the bowls before the altar. If you know what you are and live according to your high calling, you housemaids, you cooks, you nurses, you plowmen, you housewives, you teachers, you sailors, your labor is holy if you serve the Lord Christ in it, if by living unto him as you ought to live. The sacred has been absorbed. The sacred has absorbed the secular, to make sure I get that one right. See, Spurgeon is picking up on something that we can draw out of our text that the materials that Aholiab and Bezalel and the Israelites were using to build the tabernacle, they were material of the land. And the people that were constructing this tabernacle, they were fallen human beings like you and me, prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to break things and to mess up relationships. It wasn't as if God dropped down holy elements and holy people to build this holy place. Instead, he used regular, ordinary material and people to build his house of worship for his people, which is the third and final principle we learn from this passage, is that work is ordinary. Our work that we're called to, the vast majority of us 
have ordinary work. We do ordinary things like what they were doing. Building a tabernacle, while it was important, and what they were going to do there, the fact that God would dwell, that is extraordinary. But that's God's work. That's not the people's work. But building this tabernacle, fashioning things out of wood and stone and and putting gold and bronze, this was not some high thing, some spiritual thing. It was ordinary work that they were used to doing. You and I are called to endeavor in ordinary work to build houses, to have gardens so that we can eat, like they say in Jeremiah. We take comfort in that. Because our modern culture wants our work to always be extraordinary. We want to be the next hit, the next author, the next YouTube influencer, the next person to make it in something, to have our name known. We want to make a difference in the world. And look, those things are okay to strive for, but I want to press this point that ordinary work is how we make a difference. It doesn't have to be radical in his recent book, Daniel Doriani, who is the author and uh, pastor preacher who's going to come uh, to us in September, in a book that you can get out there, in a work that makes a difference. He says this about ordinary work. I think this is really good, what he says about making a difference with ordinary work. Quote, we make a difference when we do ordinary work well. Workers change their corner of the world when they correctly mount tires on wheels, drive rivets into planes, and put ketchup into bottles. When tires wobble, ketchup sprays wildly, and wings fall off planes, it's a problem. We make a difference when we build sturdy chairs and ship good soups, soaps, and sedans. We love our customers, our unseen neighbors outside work by doing ordinary jobs well. See, God called Bezalel, Aholiab, and the Israelites to make a difference in their corner, to produce a place where the Israelites would worship and where God would be known as the God of all things. But it was through ordinary work, but yet they make a difference. You and I are called to make a difference through doing our ordinary work well. And I could go through here and spend hours telling each one of us and trying to draw it out and what it would look like, but that's why we've created the Faithfully Working Ministry, that we might do that together as a community, that we could encourage one another in our work and that how we might apply this principle and others like it to our everyday, ordinary work, whether paid or unpaid. We could be here for a long time talking about this, but God has another call on the Israelites in our text, and it's a call to rest. So we have to be faithful to this calling to rest because today's society has all but forgotten the idea of what rest, and particularly Sabbath rest, is. We move at a breakneck pace. We are doing things faster and more efficiently than have been done before, but yet somehow we're still working long hours. In a recent article, it's 2019, so it's super recent, but it feels like. 2019 article in The Atlantic, there was an author who wrote about this idea, workism, and the idea that our work has assented to something of a religion. People are choosing to work more, not less. See, the bill of goods that we were all sold was that we would end up working less. 
that we would have 15-hour work week. That was a, a promise that was made to some folks in the 1970s, and they are certainly wrong. Today, now, it's the four-day work week that we aspire to. We can have more time for leisure and the things that we enjoy doing. But that is not what is happening here is what the gospel of work says, and this is according to the author. That work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. More paid work. See, this is counterintuitive to to the way that we're being encouraged here in the scriptures. But why is it that people are working more? Why is it that we have long hours? We're so connected to our bosses because of the the ease of technology. We have applications on our computers and our phones that connect us 24-7 to the people that we work with and our employers. And so you can see how it begins to get a little fuzzy between work and rest. Even now in the post-pandemic, your kitchen table is no longer just where you have a meal with your family and maybe do a devotion. It's also where you open your computer and you do your work. It's gotten fuzzy. But why have we let this happen? Here is what uh, the author says perhaps the answer to this is which will lead us into how this connects to Exodus 31. Perhaps, he says, long hours are part of an arms race for status and income among the moneyed elite. Or maybe the logic here isn't economic at all. It's emotional, even spiritual. The best educated, highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office For the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays, it's where they feel most themselves. See, work becomes an identity. It becomes who we are. If we're not careful, all of us play into this, I myself included. I am known by what I do. I work at a church, I'm a pastor. Am I letting that become my identity and who I am? Think about the way that we we meet new people. What's one of the first questions we ask them? What do you do? What's your job? Where do you work? I just did this in between services and had to catch myself. (laughs) We go to it. We default to it because that's what our culture is telling us where we get our identity. But that is not what God is telling the Israelites. That's why he included the Sabbath here. Because he is saying, look, as important as it is for you to work and to build that tabernacle, a place where I'm going to dwell and you're going to worship me, it is just as important for you to rest from that work. What does the language say when at the end of verse 17 that the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. We're called to rest, to be refreshed, to reflect on the work that we're doing unto the Lord. He included it here. I love the way that one commentator puts it. 
It's as if God says, I've given you all these instructions about the tabernacle and the priests, and all those things must be made and done, but above all, you must keep my Sabbaths. At the very least, this was a warning not to let the urgency and busyness of working on the tabernacle compromise their observance of the Sabbath. Even in the midst of that holy work, they must cease and rest on the seventh day. See, this is the model that we got even from our Lord Jesus. He rested throughout his work. God fashions for us not just a command to rest, something that we need. We need the Sabbath rest. If God, the creator of all things, rested on the seventh day and was refreshed, how much more do you and I need to do that? And certainly it will help us in our struggle to not put our identity in what we do. Which leads to the last point. We're called for more. We are not just workers. We are workers. We're called to work. It's important to do that. We are so much more than that. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We were bought with a price by Christ who worked harder than any of us could have ever worked or will ever work. He worked so hard that he fell asleep during a storm. They had to wake him up because they thought they might die. While praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was bleeding because he was just so connected to the work that he had to do as he was led to the cross. Of course, when he was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. My work is done. The work that bought us, that made us righteous before God, there's nothing that you and I can do. We can't work to get that. That work had to be done by Christ. And we get to take and to remember that work that he did today. It's so fitting But you and I are more than workers. We're more than people who just need rest. We are, we find our identities in Christ. We're people of the book. And that fashions everything that we do. Our whole lives are are oriented around that truth. Not just the work that we do, paid and unpaid. Not just the way we Sabbath and we rest from our work, paid and unpaid and the way that we raise our kids and the way that we shop and do our groceries, the way that we engage with our neighbors, the way that we engage with all of life is oriented around this truth that we are called as sons and daughters by Christ to follow him, to put our trust there. That's the invitation of this passage. And what's what we see God doing through the Israelites to Bezalel, Oholiab, and all of the Israelites there, and Moses, called to work, called to rest, but called to follow Jesus. See that last verse, verse 18 in chapter 31. He gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. God gave them his covenant reminders that he will always be their God. That he will always be the one that comes back to them when they fail. The very next chapter, he's the one 
that they can trust in, that they can put their hope in. That's Christ for you and I. Our covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, the one who bought you and I with a price. He is the one we trust in, in all things. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these truths and reminders, not only the principles that we learn from this text, but that ultimate truth that we see there in verse 18, that you are our covenant God. You are the one who has entered into a relationship with broken, sinful people. We've wronged people and we've wronged you in so many ways, yet you continue to come and enter into a relationship with us for our benefit and your glory? Or would you help us to work out what it means to be a called people in our lives? There are little nuances here and there for each one of us in the different age and stage that we find ourselves. Help us as a community to engage in this idea What does it mean to be called by you? What does it mean to to orient our lives around the gospel? May our small groups, our C groups speak of this. May our Bible studies speak of this. May it be the conversations in our foyers, at our dinner tables throughout the week, the questions we're asking our neighbors. Help us, Lord. Lead us in this way. So it won't be written down and given to us like it was for Bezalel and Oholiab. But nonetheless, you're calling us ultimately keep our eyes on Christ as we pursue this life with him at the center, with our allegiance to him. Thank you for that relationship. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.